Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Cornell University did some groundbreaking research in 2018, and they interviewed thousands of elderly people who they were trying to determine what were their biggest regrets as they neared the end of their life. And what was shocking was that 76% all came back with the same answer. And that is they regretted that they didn't go after their life aspirations when they had the opportunity to do so. And to me, that sums up the reason why I wrote the book, because so many of us are falling short on the life that we truly want. Whereas we could have a passion struck life if we just approached it differently. It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable, everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It is me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I'm bringing you a conversation with a recent acquaintance and friend of mine, John Miles. He is the CEO and founder of Passion Struck. It is a company focused on impacting real change by educating people on how to live intentionally. He is the executive producer and host of the Passion Struck podcast, ranked in the top 0.01% of all podcasts globally and consistently rated number one in the Alternative Health Podcast and one of the top 10 health podcasts by Apple. It has over 17 million downloads. John has spent nearly three decades on the front lines here in military leadership, entrepreneurship, global business, life coaching, and business strategy. So as you might infer, we are talking a lot about how to live a life of intention, how to do it passionately, how to start changing your life if you feel like there are pain points where you want to change them and how to do it, how we must overcome our mindset first, and then the obstacles that we might find on our heroes or heroines journey. So we talk about the mindset shift, we talk about behavioral changes, we talk about family members, those pesky family members uh, and friends and community that might try to keep you small because it makes them feel more comfortable, and so much more. You are going to get a lot from this podcast. John breaks things down in a very practical, manageable, actionable way, and we're talking about his new book with the same title of his podcast, Passion Struck. I hope that you will find this inspiring, enlightening, and will give you some of the tools to incite the change that you are looking to do in your own life. So please enjoy the conversation with John Miles. 
I'm in my mid forties and I have never felt more energized. I am training five times a week. I'm getting in three bike rides every single week. I recently reached a personal best of 15 neutral grip pull-ups, and I could have literally done it the next day if I wanted to. And I wanted to share with you what I've been doing that is making me feel so great. One of the cornerstones of my daily health regimen is Timeline Nutrition's MitoPure. MitoPure captures a pure form of the molecule urolithin A. This is a postbiotic nutrient that re-energizes your mitochondria, which are the cells that are responsible for making energy and widely considered a cornerstone of longevity. Research has also shown that individuals supplementing with urolithin A experience an increase in muscle strength and endurance without altering their diet or exercise routines, which is why I probably got the 15 PB, the personal best. I recorded a podcast with Dr. Anurag Singh, the scientist who discovered urolithin A, and after our conversation, I started taking it as a recovery tool after my weightlifting sessions. I take it as a supplement, but it also comes in powder form, which is really great for travel. And they've also now combined it with a protein powder. So you can kind of get the two for one deal there. And I've also been using their skincare line, which helps with the skin's collagen and elastin matrix, making the skin look plump and juicy and helping reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. Right now, Timeline Nutrition is offering my Bettys 10% off at TimelineNutrition.com forward slash better. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. Use code better to get 10% off. An average person breathes 17,000 liters of air per day, making air quality crucial for better sleep, hormone production, and immune function. Indoor air is often five times more polluted than outside air. There's mold, there's pet dander, there's toxins, allergens, and even the sprays that you use to clean your home. It can all get into your lungs. After the wildfires last year and watching the air quality in my city plummet, I decided to do something about it. I decided on the Jasper Air Purifier because this company specializes in air quality and is the premier air filter for dental and medical offices. I have one in my main floor in my kitchen, and I just bought another one to put upstairs where the family sleeps at night. Jasper covers about 1,600 square feet and automatically adjusts how much purifying is needed based on the quality of the current air. It is quiet, it's beautiful looking, and blends into our modern decor. Get better sleep tonight by heading over to jasper.co forward slash better. That's J-A-S-P-R dot C-O forward slash better to get 10% off of your Jasper unit today. John Miles, welcome to The Better Show. I'm thrilled to have you here. Stephanie, it's so great to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you are so welcome. And we met just recently at a mutual friend of ours, his book launch, Jim Quick, who was relaunching his book, Limitless. And you came up to me after I was on stage and so humble, so down to earth and gave me a copy of your book, which we're going to talk about today. For those of you watching on YouTube, it's Passion Struck, 12 Powerful Principles to Unlock Your Purpose and Ignite Your Most Intentional Life. And, you know, did some research on you afterwards, as you do, you know, you're like, oh, this guy's really great. Let me, let me look up, you know, let's look him up. And oh my goodness, like number one podcast, you've interviewed just about everybody. And yeah, so humble, so down to earth, so unassuming. I was very, very impressed with your body of work and the brief conversation that we were able to have at, at Jim's event as well. So, so happy that we've connected and that you're here. Yeah, the honor is mine. And you have a great podcast. I as you and I have chatted now, we 
interview a lot of the same guests, but in different timings. So I've used your podcast to do homework for my own because I find you to be a great interviewer. So I just feel really blessed to be here. Well, that is that is the highest praise that a podcaster can have. It's like, I use your podcast as homework. That's awesome. I love that. All right. Well, let's get into the book and then maybe just into your body of work in general. I was reading the one of the first passages in the book says something along the lines of the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation and too many of us settle versus pursuing our dreams. And that just sort of stuck me like a knife in my heart. I was like, oh, Mass, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. So let's maybe start off with the why all of us are not passion struck, why all of us are not pursuing our dreams, why, what are some of the roadblocks and the obstacles that get in our way, and why is it important that we address those things? So, Stephanie, I'm going to start by quoting a statistic, and that is Cornell University did some groundbreaking research in 2018, and they interviewed thousands of elderly people who they were trying to determine what were their biggest regrets as they neared the end of their life. And what was shocking was that 76% all came back with the same answer. And that is they regretted that they didn't go after their life aspirations when they had the opportunity to do so. And to me, That sums up the reason why I wrote the book, because so many of us are falling short on the life that we truly want, whereas we could have a passion-struck life if we just approached it differently. And as far as why so many people are doing this, I think there's a number of different reasons. But there was a great book that came out in 2003 by Tim Kasser called The High Price of Materialism. And he offered a scientific explanation of how our contemporary culture of consumerism and materialism affects our everyday happiness, our psychological health, and our pursuit of our dreams. And what it really showed, and it was eye-opening for me because I realized I was doing this in my own life, is that when we place so much of our values on the accumulation of wealth, material possessions, or even if it's success or recognition, accolades, we not only face a greater risk of unhappiness, but we also end up feeling more anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, low self-worth. There are problems with intimacy. I mean, the list goes on and on. And to me, when I start looking at this, what it is all a symptom of is a concept I call unmattering. We wake up every day and we just have this overwhelming agony that these lives we are living don't result in any significance. And it just leads us down this spiral of, call it the epidemic of loneliness or helplessness or hopelessness. You pick it, but I think unmattering sits at the core of it. What a word, unmattering. And I, I find myself also contemplating, and maybe this is just you know the stage that I am in my life, is like, what you know, maybe not legacy. I don't necessarily care too much about what happens after I die, but I care about while I'm on this planet, how can I positively impact the people around me, the people that I touch, the people that I'm able to communicate with. And this word unmattering, and I've had 
swaths of women uh, reach out to, you know, our help desk who feel invisible, who feel like they have been in service to other people and not in service to themselves. And a lot of my demographic, John, just so you know, tends to be women who are in, you know, perimenopause and menopause. And this is sort of, I like to think of, of this time as like a second spring where we've spent decades, let's say, in service to our children, maybe for, you know, in our careers, you know, to our partners, what have you. And then as we have this transition into, you know, children are getting older, they're less dependent on us for food, and, you know, they can dress themselves, at least hopefully, you know, some teenagers maybe need some assistance. But for the most part, there's a bit more flexibility and time to evaluate what actually matters to us, because, you know, 40, you know, you have at least 40% of your life left, you know, at least 40 to 50% of your life left at the time that you are reaching perimenopause and menopause. And I think it's a great opportunity for women. And I think men in general, men and women really, but women in particular, I speak to my community where we can reevaluate what really matters, what we want to be doing with the time that we have left. And I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about you break down the the book into three main categories, like mindset shifts, behavioral changes, and then the psychology of progress and how we track our progress. And I wanted to maybe start with the first one that you talk about in the book, muster, mustering the power to do something great. So imagine, you know, I call my audience, sometimes I call them lovingly my Bettys. So imagine, you know, Betty, she's 48 years old, you know, son's just got, daughter's just gone off to college, and she's thinking about making a change? What are some of the first things that she needs to consider? Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest things that we end up doing is we end up just going through the motions in life instead of having that wake up moment when we realize that this life that we wanted is at a different point than we ever realized it would be. So when you come to that wake up moment, I think there are a number of things that you can do. I think one of the biggest things to work on is your overall self-worth. Because I think, especially at that moment when kids have gone off, you're searching for this new identity within you, you're questioning your self-worth and what value do you have. So what I like to do is recommend that people take a step back and really analyze when they were younger, what were those aspirations before they had the marriage, before they had the aspirations of having kids that they found a huge passion in. Because I think when we get back to that and what was really lighting us up earlier in our life, it's a great indication of where we can begin again as we look at the future self that we want to build. And this whole chapter is about life crafting, which I describe as the journey kind of as a mission angler. And I picked angler because I like to fish, but so often, unlike an angler, we're not really looking at this life purpose. We're not really angling for it in the way that we are searching for it. And so this process really amounts to reflecting on your present, where you're at and your future self and setting goals that you have for your future self, and then taking concrete steps to achieve them. But I think, as I just mentioned earlier, it starts with really examining your self-worth and what created that self-worth for you, for these other elements entered your life that are now leaving it. And I think it's also important to 
mentioned time insofar as it's never too late. I think that a lot of the feedback that I've heard, and I've, I've also struggled with this concept as well. It's like, oh, but I'm already 40 or I'm already, I'm already 50, you know, I'm already 60. It must be too late for me to start anything new. And I like, you know, in the, in the, in the book, you talk about this idea of brand reinvention, like never being afraid to reinvent yourself. And I think that the, the, the other piece that I would add to that is that it's never too late to start, right? There's a there's a woman online, I think her handle is Train with Joan. I think that that's what her handle is. And she started weightlifting when she was maybe 70, I want to say, 60, 70. And she has been training now for, I don't know exactly how many years, may, call it five years, maybe 10 years. And she looks incredible. And she's 80 years old. She was just on the cover of Women's Health Magazine. And it's like, it's never too late. Like you can be an 80-year-old jacked woman. If you let's say if that was your goal, you're like, you know what? Prior to having kids, I really love to work out. And then I go with the breastfeeding and the soccer games and the, you know, whatever it is. And I want to get back to that. Like this, and that's a very good example of someone who started quote unquote late, right? Later in life in her sixties and was able to, you know, kind of realize or actualize those dreams. So I wanted, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about maybe your own perspective on time. And if you've run up against that comment as well, like I'm, I've run out of time or it's too late, it must be past my time for me. Now, my view on time, and it's something that I developed when I was much younger, is that it's malleable. And I think that's important for people to understand that wherever you're at in your life, you have a chance to, to do a do-over. And I look at my mom as... A great example of this, I have two younger siblings, and as they were entering into high school, she decided that she wanted to give herself a second opportunity at the career that she always wanted because she was a stay-at-home mom. And so they had just moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee. They were opening up the Tennessee Aquarium, and she became employee number two Hmm. for them and handled all the kind of the events and the management of all the members. But for her, it was a reawakening of the second half of her life. And she ended up spending 25 years with the aquarium. And it ended up being some of the most, I guess, profoundly gratifying years of her life because of the experiences that she got leading these member groups all all the way from the Galapagos Islands to safaris in Kenya And what I really liked about my mom's approach to it is she wanted to have all these life experiences. And my dad was a person who constantly traveled for work and he was kind of sick of getting on a plane. So she kind of crafted this whole life for herself through this job that gave her the ability to do these life experiences with it. And and that's a a great example of she was probably in her late 40s, early 50s when she made that pivot. And I myself was in my late 40s when I made the pivot to doing what I am doing today. I had spent, for background for the audience, most of my career as a senior executive in companies and then in the private equity world. But I think so many of us have this inner voice that's there tapping us on the shoulder, and oftentimes we don't listen to it. And that's what was happening to me. And so if I had a, a, a bigger do-over, I would have done this reinvention earlier. But I think the world for the younger generations that we're going into now is changing so quickly 
that they're going to have to reinvent themselves much more than you or I or most of your listeners have. But even if you're facing perimenopause or menopause, it's still a great opportunity to give yourself the gift that you can reinvent yourself. I'm living proof of it. My mom's living proof. And there's never a time that you don't have that opportunity to change who you want to be and how you want to approach your life. So let's talk a little bit about what are some of the steps? So you've ta- you talk in the book a little bit about permitting yourself to dream. So I think you touched on that a little bit when you said, you know, reevaluating your self-worth, what were some of your aspirations and some of the things that you were really drawn to. And I've said before on the podcast, sort of half joking, like I've n- I never dream about being a basketball player or being a hockey player because those those realities aren't meant for me, right? But I do dream about being on bigger stages. I do dream about writing more books. I do dream about growing my podcast to you know, to, to reach more women. And part of that, part of the dreams that I have for my career is because I feel like those dreams are meant for me. So how do we begin to, if you've been someone who's sort of been holding it together for other people, how do we begin to sink into, you know, into our desires, let's say, or permitting ourselves to dream? I think, I think there's also something really special about that word desire. I think there's a bit, I think we generally have a bit of a funny relationship with it. It sort of has a bit of a, maybe has a bit of a sexual undertone. So we sort of avoid it. But I think that those desires, those things that are very maybe colorful or juicy or like the idea is sticky for us. I think sinking in or leaning into those desires, I think can be, I think, I think can be very useful. I'd love, I'd love for you to expand on it and what your thoughts are on that too. Yeah. To me, one of the biggest exercises that you have to go through if, if you're, if you don't know the answer is what is that thing on earth that you were called to solve that only you are positioned to solve. And I think before you can reinvent yourself, you need to get a deep understanding of what that is. And I have a friend, Rory Vaden. You might know Rory. Other people might have heard of Rory and, and AJ. They have a company called Brand Builders Group. But one of the things I, I love that Rory talks about is we are best positioned to serve the person that we once were. But I think another step of it, and one of the most important exercises that I put myself through was changing my perspective of how I was living my life. And I happened to go to a career coach who gave me this analogy of if you go into your kitchen and there's a stool there, John, you you're on this stool that has one support. And for me, it was the constant grind for one of your listeners. It could be the constant impact of having to be a mother or having to be the, the stay-at-home person or, or whatever it may be. But generally, we are overemphasizing our life too much in one area. And he really got me to think about my life as a stool with multiple supports and that those supports could be anything I wanted them to be. For me, I chose them to be things like physical health, mental health, relationship health, spiritual health, emotional health, because I knew if I got those things working in conjunction with each other, that the career would take care of itself. But underneath this all, I needed to do the work to find out what was that thing that that one word problem that 
only I was put on earth to do. And for me, it is this unmattering or anti-mattering word that I used. But I think that that becomes a starting point. And once you understand that, what you're trying to do in the world is, is typically the exact opposite. So I'm trying to help people live intentionally so they live a life that matters. But once you figure out what your calling is, is to help people, then it gets you on the track where you can start dreaming to your point about how do you start making that into a reality. And to me, that's some of the biggest components of rebranding yourself is taking that dream. And as you yourself were doing, as I'm doing, I mean, I think the person who is trying to figure out this next stage of their life needs to do the same thing. And once they do it, then it's what activities you need to do as you're reinventing yourself to get yourself in a position that you can make this dream become a reality. And that's where rebranding yourself becomes so paramount. And I know people think, you know, I'm in my 40s or I'm in my 50s and I've had no professional career or I've had this professional career and no one knows me as a personal brand. Well, I was in the exact same spot when I started this journey. I remember creating the outline and the initial book proposal for Passion Struck, and I was sharing it with agents. And they all were coming back to me saying, you don't have a personal brand. How do you know this is going to resonate with anyone? And the honest answer was, I didn't know. Yeah, good question. And I actually don't have that answer. <laughs> yeah. So it for me, it, it led me to start tackling the reinvention. And if I'm going to do this, how do I figure out if it's going to resonate with people? And so that got me to test my comfort zone and to start the podcast, start Instagram posts, start putting myself out there so I could see what resonated and, and what didn't. And once you start doing that, it starts building upon itself. And with each action you take, it gets you so much closer to where you see yourself in the future. I think the other thing that's important to consider as well is, and you talk about this extensively in the book, and I, this is why I'm bringing it up, is that we are our own worst boss, or we're, our, you know, we're our own worst competitor. And I think there can be, a, you know, you can sit there and permit yourself to dream and think about all the things that you want and get started. And then the same stories, let's say, will come up at some point. And I used to do this a lot in the clinic, whether I was consulting for, you know, it might have been a pain management that we were dealing with, it was a, you know, compensatory mechanics that we were trying to fix, or it could have been weight loss, you know, women coming in with that sort of nagging 10 to 15 pounds that they've gained and lost their entire lives. And it's like, okay, why haven't you been able to solve this problem yet? What are some of the things that have gone in your way? And while my patients absolutely hated me in that moment for asking them that question, because it's a difficult question, you're asking them to say, what are the biggest obstacles that are in front of you? Usually the answer Maybe you start with, well, I, the time I don't have the time to dedicate to the gym, or I don't have time to meal prep, or I don't have time to do the rehab exercises, or what have you. At the end of the day, we always make time for the things that are important to us, right? So, asking questions around self sabotage, our own belief, our own beliefs around 
our self-worth, which is part of the reason why I like the way that you've structured the book is you start off with the mindset first, and then you move into some of the behavioral changes. And most people don't like, maybe you found this in your um, consulting. I have found working with patients, whether it's one-on-one or in a group setting, everyone wants to get to the doing part. It's like, okay, tell me what to do. Tell me the exercise. What's the thing that's going to help me? And while that's important, you also have to understand that your own mind is going to be the one that is going to derail you. Foot mechanics affect every aspect of your fitness and your movement patterning. When we are wearing shoes with a built-in arch support, lots of cushioning, we are affecting the mechanics of the entire lower limb and spine. These types of shoes will shorten the Achilles tendon, they will limit ankle dorsiflexion, they cause more arch collapse, they limit toe flexion and abduction, which causes bunions, they affect your ability to squat properly, and your ankle and knees have to take up the slack of a foot that isn't moving the way it should. I have recently swapped my running shoes and have been wearing Paluva shoes as my day shoe, still training barefoot, and I've loved it. Paluva helps to restore foot mechanics, giving your feet the room to move, which improves posture, your gait, your natural body movement, and for me, it's helping my squat. Go to paluva.com forward slash Dr. Stephanie to get 10% off of your entire order. That's P-E-L-U-V-A dot com forward slash D-R-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E to save 10%. So let's talk a little bit about some of the stories that we may need to dismantle. And you talk about the power of introspection, talking about ego. Can we expand a little bit on how we have to understand that sometimes we are our own worst enemies in our progress or in our plight for being passion struck or uh, living a life that is worth, uh, that is intentional and worth living. Sure. This uh, chapter is called Fear Confronter. And when I originally wrote the book, the first title for the chapter before I came up with these nifty names for each one was The Visionary Arsonist. <laughs> and I, I love that word for it because we end up arsoning the very dreams and aspirations that we have for ourselves because we let, as you were bringing up, self-doubt, imposter syndrome, lack of self-worth, lack of self-kindness, whatever it may be, compete with us leaving living the dream that we always wanted to have. And in this chapter, I tried to highlight a couple women, actually, who went through some pretty amazing things. One was Kirstie Ennis, who is a former sergeant in the Marine Corps. And I tell her story because she was this person deployed to Afghanistan. She's on the last day, last mission before she gets to go home. And her helicopter crashes and she wakes up having limbs amputated brain injury, you know, her life is never going to be the same. And so you think about all the self-doubt that she would have at that moment. And instead of letting it get the best of her, and I think this is a choice that we all get to make, she decided that she wanted to live her life on her own terms. And she set a goal that she wanted to climb um, the six highest peaks. And she's accomplished now five out of the six, but she chose to let her life define itself, not by the fact that she wasn't the able body that she was before, but that she had the power to overcome these, these deepest doubts. And then I also have Dara Kurtz in this chapter, and Dara's a dear friend of mine, but 
she's someone who she has a couple older daughters now. I think one is teenage age, one is in college, but she had this great career as a financial advisor. And then she ended up developing breast cancer. And as she was going through this process, she herself started to face all these doubts about what the future of her life held. And instead of letting the doubts get the best of her, she decided that this life that she had been leading of being in the financial realm, although it was lucrative for her, wasn't her living the life that she wanted. And she was letting her self-doubts control her. And she took this opportunity as she recovered from cancer as a second chance of life and to double down on her passions, which were writing. And since then, she's written two best-selling books and has redefined happiness in her life and for her, what this next juncture of her life looks like. But all in all, just as things happen in a work environment where you're assigned maybe a project and then the best people get taken off this project or the budget shifts and you you don't have the momentum going forward to accomplish it or you have other priorities that cloud it being the number one priority. I'm, I'm just giving examples, but we do yeah. the same thing to ourselves when we let these fears and doubts and feelings of insecurity cloud our potential and arson the very dreams that we want to create for ourselves. How is our ego the enemy of our perspective? I mean, it's I, in, in, a, in a huge way. I, I think one of the, the easiest things to say and hardest things to do is to become a pers- perspective harnesser. And oftentimes we get into the roles that we have in life or the way that we historically do things. And we hit a point in our life where we face life struggles, which all of us are going to face. And for many of us, it brings us down to our knees. And to me, one of the things that holds us there is our ego. It's thinking of all the things that we have and what's being impacted instead of looking at things in a, through a different perspective, through humility and understanding that, that this is a growth opportunity and shifting that perspective from one where we're feeling the pain to one understanding that this is a trying time and that it's a test that has a shorter duration and if we examine it like that, we can see it as a learning opportunity, as a phase in our life that we can get through that's going to make us stronger on the other side. And to me, it's really going from either or thinking and how we're approaching our lives to both and thinking, which is a core behavior science concept around paradoxes. And so m- many of us end up putting these guardrails on our lives that I think are rooted your point in ego instead of looking at looking at it through the lens of both what we can accomplish and thinking through what can get us there by shifting our perspective. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to unpack there and I think that it would be prudent to also say that this is an ongoing process. It doesn't just you don't just wake up one day and say, all right, I am going to slay all of these stories that, you know, from my experiences that I've been taught, you know, in my 
in my culture, in my socioeconomic environment, in my you know, in my lived experience, it is a constant unraveling. And I think that as you grow and as you progress, your ego is is a you know, it's it's sort of along for the ride and becomes more savvy and becomes more wily as well. I, I you know, I remember when I started the podcast. I was, first of all, like, who needs another podcast on health, right? On women's health specifically. I already felt like the, the market was rather saturated at the time that I started. And then, so I did that for a while, you know, I was doing well. And the community started asking for solo episodes. Like, oh, this is really great. We love your interview with such and such and so-and-so, but we'd love to hear Stephanie's opinion on, you know, insert topic here, like hormone replacement therapy or whatever. And that was really difficult for me to do. I was like, no, I'm very happy hiding in the interviewer's position, right? So I could just direct all of the questions to someone else for the hour or however long the show is. But for me to do one by myself, it was petrifying. It took me a long time to start doing those solos. And now, you know, I have, you know, we've sort of reorganized the team somewhat. So now I have my podcast producers like, no, you got to get more solos. Like that's what everybody wants. You have to have at least one solo every, you know, six weeks or whatever it is, because that's what people are, are asking for. But it's interesting that you would think, oh, like once you've started the podcast, like it's totally fine. But no, it, it sort of morphs along with your success. And there's always, you know, it's, I think this the saying is like new, new new levels new devils right there's like new there's always like something sort of to uncover and to continue unwrapping as you're as you're ascending would you would you agree with that i do agree with that i started out the show started doing one interview a week and one solo and i have to tell you that solos have always been difficult to do because you're basically writing a keynote for everyone that (laughs) that you do which i don't think people understand but most of mine are somewhere between 20 to 30 minutes. And if you think about that in, in the size of an article, it's it's basically writing a chapter of a book. It's 3,000 to 4,000 words. And it takes a lot of effort to create it. But not only that, you're at your most vulnerable because the stuff that you're talking about is your opinion. Is my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if you know Rob Greenlee, but he is one of my favorite podcasters he does a completely different show he kind of does shows on podcasting because he's been one of the forefathers of the whole movement i think he's been podcasting now for 17 years wow but i was having a conversation with him and he asked me this is probably a year and a half two years ago he goes when you look at your statistics what episodes do the best and i hadn't really spent that much time analyzing him at that point to be honest and so I pulled it up while he was on the mm-hmm. podcast and I started looking at it and for the month out of, it showed me a top 10, seven out of the 10 were my solo episodes That's that I recorded. It, I was going to say, it's the solos. They love, and the, the scary thing about it, I think, is that you're, give, like, as you said, you're giving your opinion and it's it's a moment of vulnerability because you know that someone is not going to agree with you. You might be talking about a mindset piece. I talk about health and nutrition and fitness, which can be incredibly controversial, especially with women's health. And you know that you're going to offend or upset someone with your opinion. And I found this particularly difficult in the pandemic because I had lots of opinions that I was very, I'm very, I'm sort of a conservative person where I, I, 
I have the opinion. I'm like, does this really make sense? Does my opinion hold water? So I wait because I'm looking for, I'm testing it, right? It's like what a hypothesis would be. It's like, here's my theory. Can I discredit it in any way? And once I felt like I had substantial amount of evidence to sort of support my, at the time, very controversial, I mean, it was like vitamin D, like let's, like, let's take some more vitamin D guys, let's get out in the sunshine and maybe think about some other ways to boost our immunity. There's not only one, like it's not just getting, you know, a needle in the arm. That's not the only way that we boost our immunity. But just even saying that, I mean, now maybe two years on, it might be like, oh, of course. But at the time, you know, there was a mob of people that were ready to tell you that you're a a complete moron for thinking that. So I was very, very reticent. I mean, that's my own specific example, but the solos always do. I mean, back to kind of the original point of like the ego evolving with you, the solos were the scariest piece for me because it was me really like bearing, you know, just like sharing my opinions that I often would only share with you know, private clients or patients or what have you. And now you're sharing it on this sort of much bigger platform and understanding how many people are listening to you. And you know, the stats of like this many tens of thousands downloaded every week and et cetera, et cetera. It can be, it can be, it can be scary, but let me, let me pivot from there because there's not only, we don't, we not only have ourselves that we need to fight. We also typically also need to understand the environment and the dynamics of people around us. Uh, you talk about the mosquitoes, the mosquito being a mosquito auditor. And I wanted to talk a little bit about each of the different archetypes of the mosquitoes that you talk about in the book. And I think this is really important because there's, everyone's heard the saying, like, you are the sum of your five friends, or you are the average of the five friends that you hang out with. And I think that for many people around you, when you decide to make a change, it's also threatening to them because it's a reminder that they are not changing. It's a reminder that they are still where they are as you are starting to move towards your dreams or, you know, take action in your life. So let, let's talk a little bit about the mosquitoes, what a mosquito, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about being a mosquito auditor and maybe some of the different types of mosquitoes that we may encounter in this journey to, to moving towards our dreams. Yeah, I'll definitely tackle it. I'm, I'm just going to take one step backward and just let the audience know that when I came up with these 12 principles, it's not as if I just stumbled upon this list. I ended up coming up with a larger list. And for a period of time, I was the editor-in-chief of another publication called Bold Business. And I happened to start this segment called The Bold Leader Spotlight. And I started interviewing everyone from Elon Musk to Jeff Bezos Oprah, you name it. And I started to see this pattern in their business life. And I wondered if the same thing happened and how you create this life of aspiration that so many of them hold as well. And so I ended up expanding this list to about 750 individuals. And it ranged from actors and actresses to professional athletes, to performers, to astronauts, to you know, the gamut. And I took this list of like 30 principles and I whittled it down to these 12 that are in the book because I kept seeing them reoccur time and time again across this group of people who had lived this life that they had always aspired to. So the mosquito auditor is the third principle. And the way I was coming up with this is 
know, we talked about the the first step is you've got to go out there and life craft what you want this future self to look like. Then you need to start rebuilding this brand. And as you're going through both of these steps, as Stephanie was talking about, one of the things that gets in the way, even before you have self-doubt, is the opinions of family, friends, and peers who are around you. And as I was approaching this chapter, I I like to write in a way that I go out in nature and I think about a topic and see what the universe presents to me as a way to approach it. And that's exactly what happened here is I was thinking about it. I happened to turn on a podcast. The host was doing this segment on the most dangerous animals on the planet type of thing and asked the audience this question. And like most of the people in the audience, probably you right now, I'm thinking in my head, it's the great white shark. It's this poisonous jellyfish that they have in Australia or one of their poisonous steaks or this or that. And the the announcer came back on and said, it's actually the mosquito. The mosquito takes more human lives in a year than all sharks combined will in a hundred years. And it's, it's a number somewhere between 1.2 and 2 million, depending upon the year. And when I started to think about it, they're really invisible until they bite you and you start feeling the after effects. I mean, you might hear them buzzing around and they're this pesky thing, but it's, they're a nuance. And the same goes with human mosquitoes in our lives. And I started thinking about the book that Jonah Berger wrote called Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. And it led me into kind of this. He wrote, he wrote Contagion too, didn't he? He did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's, he's great. Mosquitoes. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, and it led me to start thinking about what are the different types of people that we run across that keep us from achieving our dreams. And the first one I define as the bloodsucker. And I'm a big Terry Cole fan. And one of the concepts that she has is something called the boundary destroyer. And that's exactly what a bloodsucker is. It's these manipulative people who want what they want from you, and they're going to do whatever it takes to get that last drop of blood out of you. The next one, I think, is something that so many of us run into all the time, and that's the invisible suffocator. These are are the glass half-empty people in our lives, the pessimists. They cling to the status quo. Or the past. And then, yes. And then the third are the pitas or the pain in the asses. And to me, these are the the people in your life who are two-faced or they're the people in your life who never listen to you, but always just pontificate about what they think they know without doing any research on it. But really, they just get in the way of your momentum. And I picked these funny names for them to help people remember them. But once you recognize who the bloodsuckers are, the invisible suffocators and PETA in your life, it gives you a great advantage because now that you know who they are, you can do something about them. And this isn't only in your personal life. This plays out just as much, if not more, in your work life. I mean, just and just think about what these mosquitoes are doing to employee actions. I mean, they're reducing motivation and engagement, same as it does in your personal life. They're decreasing productivity and performance. Same thing that they do in your personal life. It increases stress, etc. So it's so important to to recognize them. And then 
develop some strategies on then what are you going to do about them? Okay, so I have a couple questions. So first is how do we audit, right? So how do we identify that we have a pain in the ass or a bloodsucker or any of these, we'll call them emotional contagion, (laughs) you know, spreading bugs. And then the other, I think it's easier, it's one of those scenarios where it's easier said than done, where it's like, we don't want mosquitoes in our lives, but it's much more difficult when that's your sister or it's your mother or it's your uncle that comes over every Christmas and you want his approval, let's say. I think it's much more difficult. I think it's more difficult when it's family, family or friends, right? Because usually within the case of both family and friends, you've evolved together. So you've been a lesser version of yourself. They've seen you potentially at your worst or in in scenarios where they may view you as a former version of yourself. And it's hard for them to see how you're evolving because they already have this predefined schema or they have this predefined uh, archetype of who you are. And so when you come to them, let's say, with a big idea, you go to your sister or you go to your mother or whomever with these big ideas, it's very difficult for them to say, well, this is the progression that you know this individual has made before. They sort of just see you as like little... Little little Johnny, right? Or little little Stephanie, right? They just see you as a smaller version of who you are. And it's there's a lot of there's a lot of obligation or maybe implied obligation, we'll say, to family. So what are how do we how do we deal with that? So the way I recommend doing it, I mean the most simplistic way that I've found is I create a target like I would if I were shooting archery, and I think about the different circles of who are the people who are in my most immediate sphere. There's four or five people who influence me more than anyone else. And then I go through the exercise of do any of them meet any of these criteria? And then I go to the next circle, the next circle, the next circle. And I have found that that's a helpful tool to kind of analyze who is doing this. Because once you realize where they're sitting on this, and you could even color code them based on the the type that they are, or if they're not one of the types and they're a positive influence. But once you know that they are having that influence, you get to see it in, in a reference of how close they are to the impact that they're having on you. And then you can decide what are you going to do about it? Are you going to confront them and try to work towards a solution that's going to keep them still in the sphere that they're at, or are you going to choose a different strategy where you're pushing them out to a farther ring or eliminating them off the board altogether? And so some of the things that I think you need to work through is first is to identify your limits. Start by understanding what your limits truly are and what are you willing to accept from people around you and to how it's impacting your emotional and mental limits. Once you do that, it's then understanding this communication path that you need to have for how you're going to communicate the boundaries that you want to have with these people. And it's not just about stating your limits, but more explaining the rationale behind them. And then one of the things that I think people really mess up in is the consistency of the action. So if you're not consistent with reinforcing the boundaries that you want to have with people, you're going to let the old behaviors come back in. And so you really have to be mindful about the consistency. I also think it's extremely important to practice self-care. 
as you're doing this, because we all know when these mosquitoes impact our lives, they create self-doubt, they create impacts to self-worth. So to me, setting boundaries is an act of self-care. It's about recognizing your worth and giving yourself to prioritize your own well-being. And then lastly, uh, I think it's seeking out external support, whether that's a friend or a family member who can give you guidance or it could be professional support that you need. Yeah, this is where Terry really shines, isn't it? With the with the Boundary Boss book, we had her on the show. Sounds like you've been she's been on your show as well. In terms of how to articulate boundaries, and to your point, it's the consistency of holding those boundaries, which is on you as the individual. And I think this is where a lot of I find a lot of women struggle greatly with this. I don't know if this is the same for men. I think m- women are generally raised to be conflict averse. And you hear sort of social psychologists like Jordan Peterson talk about, you know, when women are in a conflict with each other, it's often not physical violence. I mean, sometimes it's like that, but it's often because we don't have that available to us. It's not sus- you know, socially acceptable, it's usually character assassination, right? So we'll go after uh, a woman's promiscuity, or she's not pretty, or she's not this or that. And we are so conflict averse, or we have this aversion to not being happy and not being smiley and not being nurturing, uh, that it's very hard, I think, for women to to hold boundaries, which is like Terry's book is, is such a great resource on there. And I recently as part of my New Year's resolutions, I know this is going to be airing in February, but we are recording this in January, is to do yoga. And my yoga instructor recently said something, and I just want to share this with you and the audience to see how it lands. We had done the class, we were in a corpse pose, we were in, I believe it's called Shavasana, and he said, it's, sp- uh, it's poor spiritual hygiene to let everybody have access to you. And that just, he was just, he just met, it was just like a little off the cuff mention. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks as I was recovering from this crazy yoga class. Poor spiritual hygiene to let everybody have access to you. How does that land? How does that land with you? I, I absolutely love it. But what does that do when I say that? How do you, what do you think of when I say that? Yeah, I mean, so often we try to be a pleaser to everyone else, but we don't put ourselves first in the equation of taking care of our own, basically our own needs, whether they be emotional support or physical well-being or whatever it is. And so we let all these external forces come in and intrude the very tranquility that we're trying to build for ourselves, which is exactly what I think he was trying to say. So I think that positive internal dialogue, that imagery that we build for ourselves and holding a space for ourselves and letting the influences in that are going to build us up and not tear us apart is extremely important. Let's get into some action items. I know we've been talking a little bit about the mindset shifts. In the book, you talk about Mark Devine and his story. And this is in the behavioral changes section of the book where you talk about this idea. There's these four things that Mark talks about, which is, and you just mentioned them briefly, breath control, positive internal dialogue, imagery, and targeted focus. So let's just assume that our listener has given themselves permission to dream, that they are, they've said to themselves, it's not 
not too late. I can actually, at 57, I can create a new business or I can follow the, the desires that are in my heart and in my soul. Uh, they've reinvented themselves. Uh, they've audited all their mosquitoes. They know where their stories can lead them up that can, you know, their belief stories can alter their behavior. So they're sort of looking at their ego. And now we're at this point where we are having to manage our own, let's say, anxiety or our internal or external responses to our environment. What are some of the things, and I love the talk about breath work because it's such a, it's like, it's free and it's accessible to everyone, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, we all have the opportunity to change our respiratory rate. So can we talk a little bit about some of those things that Mark Devine, that you, you outlined his yeah. story in the book very beautifully. Let's talk about some of those four cornerstones. The reason I created the book in these different sections is that your mindset shifts is really determining the why and it influences how we approach our beliefs, values, our challenges, opportunities. The behavior shifts, which we're talking about now, are really the what. And it's a direct reflection of our mindset, but it dictates how we act in pursuit of our goals. And one of the most fundamental things that we need to do is once you figure out through these mindset shifts where you want to go, you then have to figure out how do you start taking deliberate action, but doing this in a way that is repetitive where you're consistently performing at your best. And this chapter is really about being an anxiety optimizer. So what I'm really referring to here is that we all need anxiety in our lives, but there's a magic point where too much anxiety is going to cause significant performance issues and burnout, but not enough anxiety is also going to cause that. So it's how do you put yourself in the optimum anxiety zone so that you're transforming that nervous energy into productive fuel and then learning how to do it at, at back and call when you need it so that you're in that flow zone, basically. And this is one of the most important things that I saw so many people from whether it was CEOs to professional athletes to Mark Devine, Navy SEAL, learn how to do. And I'll just go into the story of Mark because he came out of college and he went into big four consulting. His goal was to be a consultant, but he was going through getting his master's degree and he had a bunch of time in between when he got done work and when he was doing his night classes. So he stumbled upon this martial arts facility and just went up there and it, it just gave him this like feeling that he was supposed to do it. So he starts getting involved with this martial art and over the course of the next 12 months to 18 months, realized that this passion that he has for consulting really wasn't where his focus was and really what he was meant to become was a warrior. And so at an older age than most people would have taken on this task, he decides that he wants to become a Navy SEAL. And this whole influence that he had with the martial arts and what it taught him ends up playing a pivotal role in him getting the nickname of Cyborg. And I have friends who actually served with Mark and said, when you think of a cyborg, it's what he was like in the way that he conducted himself because he used these four dimensions that you brought up of breath control, 
positive internal dialogue, imagery, and targeted focus to basically run his life so that in those moments when he needed it, he put himself purposefully in this zone of optimal anxiety. And so I thought it was interesting because when I served, I wouldn't have thought typically that it was going to be the SEAL teams where I was first going to do yoga or learn how to do breath control, but it was actually a very important aspect of their training. Because if you think about going into harm's way, going into these high impact situations, you need to understand how to calm your body down, how to think about having that positive internal dialogue so that no matter what negative forces might be coming at you, you can have that sense of positivity to overcome them. And so what Mark ended up doing was he taught when he was going through buds, the people who were in his boat crew, just simple box breathing for when they were going through difficult times. He taught them how to have this ability to talk to themselves and have positive dialogue that they had the self-confidence and self-power to push through. He got them to imagine what it would feel like on the other side of the tasks. But more importantly, he got them to have targeted focus so that they could see the trying times that they were going to going through as a short duration period, where if they focused through it and used the other three elements, they could get through that trying time. And what was amazing about this journey is, you know, Mark ended up becoming the honor man, but more importantly, he was the first boat commander in buds whose entire boat crew ended up graduating and it was because he taught them these four dialogues and now and they have he a teaches notoriously the- low graduate it's like 20 percent or something 25 percent of people who go through that program actually graduate like the buds is sort of notoriously the most difficult it, I- it, it is historically but yeah. i think he has he has now developed seal fit to help people who are going through it preparer. And I think Hmm. people who've gone through his program have like a 70% or higher passing rate. So it definitely works. But I kind of take what his teaching and I, another person people may be familiar with is Stephen Kotler. And I kind of merge that what both of them do because there's so many overlaps in them. But if you look at Stephen Kotler's work, he really goes into five essential cognitive and physical skills, which are strength, stamina, agility, balance, and flexibility. Mm-hmm. But when you mirror those up with Mark's four, they kind of go hand in hand with each other in uh, what you need to do to achieve this optimal state. So the breath control is the box breathing. What does positive internal dialogue, what does that look like? This is really, to me, words of gratification. It's really having self-kindness. It's really developing an internal dialogue with yourself and the person you want to become of positive undertones that are powering the journey that you want to take. The imagery is what we talked about at the beginning, where you're imagining yourself on that stage, speaking to a large group of people or the podcast impacting more people. And then obviously the targeted focus is how do you get into this zone where you get better at focusing your attention and that unwavering focus that you need to have to get tasks done. But it's really the combination of working alongside all four of them that creates this power. 
It's interesting. For me, I find in order for me to be incredibly focused, I need to move my body first. That's been my, that's my little hack is like, I like to work out in the morning and I know this is not going to work for everybody because everybody works on all different types of, but in order for me to be very cognitively focused and do a lot of strategic thinking, I need to move my body first. I don't know why that is, but I find that I am at my sort of peak cognitively about two to three hours after I wake up. So if I can fit in a workout, you know, let's say I wake up at six, I'm at the gym, call it seven to eight. And then I'm settled at my desk by about nine. I've, I'm at that sort of peak time where I can really do a lot of deep thinking. Is that something that you found to be a pattern that repeats? Is that there has to be some physical movement paired with some, or prior, or maybe it's, it's more of a priming to a lot of the targeted focus? Is that something you find? I mean, that's, a, that's absolutely what works for me. I, I, I do a lot of targeted focus work first thing in the morning, and I do it when I'm on a walk with my dog. And it's something about the the physical activity married with a, a period of just mindfulness where I'm also doing a gratitude practice that kind of opens that period up. And then similar to you, I then go to the gym and, and work out for an hour or, or whatever. And it's those things starting my day that kind of set the stage for the other elements to come into being. So I would, I would agree with that, but not everyone's a morning person. So right, right. Um, they have to find their own way of, of doing that if they're not. But to me that I've always been a person who likes to work out where that's extremely important for me, managing that anxiety load. So I like to get it nailed first thing in the morning. One of the other things I, I, I personally I'm struggling with, and I'm trying to figure out a system for it. And this is going to, this is going to be my year to do that is how to celebrate my progress. How do I, how do I celebrate my wins? I am uh, the type of personality where I am striving for something and I'm like, you know, all hands on deck, everyone's rowing in the same direction. And most cases it's me and my team rowing in the same direction. And then we hit the goal and I'm like, great. All right. What's next? Like, I don't have any time. There's no savoring of the moment. There's no celebratory hour. There's not, it's not even a celebratory 10 minutes. It's like, great. Okay, we did it. Like, whatever. Next. How do we, first, what are your uh, suggestions for my poor, pathetic soul? Because I don't celebrate anything. This is one of the things I'm actually, I really want to work on this year because I was, Giovanni and I, uh, my husband, who you met, one of the things that we like to do at the end of every year is we actually like to do an audit of the year. How did we do? Where did we win? Where did we not win? And it was very easy for me to point out all the goals that I had set at the beginning of the year that we that weren't realized or were only partially realized. And then upon, you know, sort of deeper conversation with him, he was like, oh, no, we won here. And this is what we did. And this is how we did it. And I have almost no recollection of the wins and all the recollection of the things that didn't work out in the way that I had been planning them to. So question about how do we celebrate our wins? And then sort of the bigger question is not just selfishly that question for myself, but I I do suspect that there are many other type A personalities that are listening that are exactly the same way. It's like you're rowing towards this thing and you get there and you're like, great, okay, what's next? So there's that. And then also like, how do we actually measure? What is the, how do we keep ourselves motivated? How do we measure our progress? How do we continue to measure our progress over time? 
Yeah. Well, the first thing I, I will say is similar to you. I am not the best at celebrating my victories. And I remember I was talking to uh, Rachel Hollis about this and I mean, she agreed. We were both the type that, okay, I'm going to set that. I want to have a million downloads on the podcast. The second I hit a million, I spend two seconds thinking about it, and all of a sudden, my mind's on two million or three million. Right, right. And I think the most important thing is that we have to get into the habit of rewarding ourselves regularly, but we need to make sure that those awards and rewards align with the end game that we're trying to accomplish. And it's easier said than done. But I think to, to me, doing a bunch of the small rewards for the micro steps that you're doing, because that's really, let's face it, I mean, that's the whole undertone of my whole book is it's these small, innocuous choices that you make day in, day out that end, to, end up either culminating in a tsunami of greatness or a valley of despair. So as you're making these and you're seeing the incremental progress, it's important to take time out to reflect upon those and see the gains that you're making. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make, and Ben uh, Hardy wrote a great book on this called The Gap Versus the Gain, is we end up living so much of our life in the gap instead of the gain. And I am just as bad at this as anyone, but let me explain what they are. When we are living in the gap, we are comparing our current state of ourself against a constant moving target, which is an influencer or someone that we see who's doing what we aspire to do, but is further ahead where we are. So for me, it could be, I'm tr constantly trying to compare myself to Andrew Huberman or Joe Rogan, which is an impossible metrics to put myself against. I'm always going to be in the gap if I do that. And I'm never going to reward myself. But if I start looking at the gains, this is, my future self that I'm at today, how does this compare to the person I was six months ago or a year ago, whatever timeline you want to look at and start recognizing the gains that you're making in your life and recognizing those and how they're getting you closer and closer to the end goal that you want to want to achieve. That's what I think is the secret sauce that so many of us miss. Myself included. And I, and I think, I think that there's, and I, and I'm working on it. I am going to, I am going to figure out a system. I'm, I'm trying to think if it's like an, a, a tracker or some type of Excel sheet or Google sheet or something that I can look at, that I can amalgamate all my wins without it just being so overwhelming that it's just a bunch of, you know, cells that go on and on. Well, I think the other th important thing there to recognize, I think we also look need to look at the categories in our life where we're achieving and where we're not. So yeah. you might be achieving a lot on a career goal standpoint, but when it comes to your relationship goals, maybe they're not living up to what you had hoped for. It could be relationship is great, but your physical health goals aren't where they need to be. And it goes back to that whole school that I was talking about. And if you want to have the most balance in your life, it's really getting all of those into unison and not having one that's overpowering the others. Yeah, well said. And so when we, when we soften into allowing the wins in, what are some of the ways that we can consistency, consistently 
be tracking progress over time? Are there points that we need to, are there sort of, do we have to, you know, sort of demark lines in the sand? Like what are ways that we can be tracking our progress with time? Yeah, I mean, there there are different ways to do it. I tried to give an example of this in the book. As I go into the third section of the book, I created the five different levels or plateaus you could think of them as on your journey to becoming passion struck. And I outlined, they were called the subsister, the imitator, the vanquisher, orchestrator, and creative amplifier. And I wanted to give some benchmarks so that people could see where they're at on their journey. That, that's a higher level aspect of it to, to kind of chart the course. But I think for us individually, I like to use worksheets where throughout the year I am looking at the goals that I wanted to achieve. I, I like to do it in two different ways. So one of them is I like to do it in a quarterly review where I look back at the progress that I've made thus far. Another thing that I, I use personally is something that I call the deliberate action process. And this is a process I've been using for 20 years, and it has the following steps. You assess, prioritize, ignite, execute, measure, and renew. And I typically will align the things that I want to get done in either a weekly or biweekly exercise. And I use this process. And so the first thing is you kind of assess what is the end game that you're driving for and I kind of do ideation and put a whole bunch of things on there that are going to drive me closer to it. Then I start prioritizing using the urgent versus important matrix where what are the most important and urgent things that I need to get done and what are things that I can delegate or push back. And then uh, I use intrinsic motivation as the ignition to keep going on this. I then execute and then the measurement stage is something that a lot of people don't do. They don't measure their progress that they've made from when they start the deliberate action cycle. And then the renew phase is really a time for recognition, celebration, and again, getting that intrinsic motivation to see the progress you've made to use it again as you get into the next cycle of using the deliberate action process again. And while I was reading through the book, although I didn't scan them, there's a ton of QR codes in there. Are there resources that people can download as they're going through? Is that, you know, for example, this assess, prioritize, ignite, execute, renew? Yeah. So I end up creating this as a benefit if you pre-order the book. So in the book, I kind of approach the deliberate action process. I tell you what it is, but I don't really tell you how to implement it. But I wrote a corresponding ebook that's I think it ended up being about 60 pages long that goes through it in detail with exercises and worksheets that you can use to, to really take it and implement it in your life. And that's available if you pre-order the book along with some other things that I've developed. And where can people, where can we direct people to go pre-order the book if they want to find out more? So you can buy the book wherever you purchase books. So Amazon, Walmart, Target. But once you're done doing that, if you go to the Passion Struck website, and you go to forward slash passion struck book at that link, you will find a place where you can put that order code in. And then once you do, and you submit your personal information, I will then send you a link that has the first chapter of the book. It has a class that I did a mastermind and that'll go deeper into finding your purpose. I have an ebook on the deliberate action process, an ebook on intrinsic motivation, 
And then later on, I also have some eBooks that will be coming out on self overcoming self-doubt, the importance of mattering, and a couple other topics, plus meditations and other things. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes. John, it's been a pleasure talking with you today and going through some of the principles that you talk about in the book. And I'm looking forward to continuing getting to know you. And I know that I'm going to, I think I'm going to be on your show at some point this year as well. So looking forward to continuing that conversation there as well. Yeah, absolutely, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 